Thanks, Peter. Uh, as a church, we are now two months into a 12-month Sunday morning and Sunday evening teaching series, working our way right through the Bible from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, from January to December. And what we're trying to do is listen in on and reflect upon the story, the big story of God's Word, the unique and the exciting unfolding story of redemption. And we've called this series Essential Word, and this morning we arrive at the closing stages of Joseph's story. Now, before Christmas, we spent seven Sundays living the dream, looking at Joseph's story in detail from Genesis 37 to 45. But we stopped at that point, which is actually five chapters before the actual end of the story. And then last Sunday night, Peter picked up the story in Genesis 46 and 47. And so what we're going to do this morning, or what I'm going to attempt to do, is cover three chapters in 25 minutes and bring Joseph's story to a close. So if you have a Bible, and there are Bibles in the pews if you haven't brought one with you, and I would encourage you to just turn with me to Genesis chapter 48. And in Genesis 48, we find Jacob, who is Joseph's dad, coming to the end of his life. Now, Jacob has been talking about dying for 39 years. Ever since he thought Joseph was dead, Jacob has been talking time and time again about the prospect of dying. But here and now, at the age of about 147, death is imminent. And his final act, the last thing that he does, is he blesses others. Which is incredibly appropriate, bearing in mind the original promise of God that was given to a young Jacob in a dream in a place called Bethel. When God said to him, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are living. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So in a sense, Jacob is now doing what he's been called and chosen to do. He was blessed by God to be a blessing and to bless others. And in Genesis 48 and 49, he's doing exactly that. And as we have said before, we as the people of God have been incredibly blessed by God. Incredibly blessed by God. And therefore, we are to be a blessing to others. The question is, who have you blessed this week? Have you been a blessing to all those that you came into contact with this week? That's what we're called to do. And the first people that Joseph uh, or Jacob blesses are his two grandsons. They're Joseph's two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. Although how this blessing plays out is not how Joseph, the dad, imagined it would. Because what Joseph did was he he placed or positioned Manasseh in front of Jacob's right hand, the preeminent hand. And he placed Ephraim, the younger boy, in front of Jacob's left hand, the lesser one. Now, if you're left-handed here this morning, uh, don't take offense at that. It's just the way blessing worked in this particular culture, in this particular context. But... In a fascinating twist, and you can read it in Genesis 48, Jacob does this. He crosses his hands. And so as it says in verse 20, he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. 
Now, given Jacob's own story of hijacking his older brother's birthright, there's something slightly ironic in this maneuver. You see, some habits die hard. Joseph's not impressed at his dad. Not at all. In fact, it says he's displeased. He's annoyed at his dad's behavior. But it's done now. Ephraim, the younger, will be greater than Manasseh. Now, Manasseh, it says, will still become a people. So, in other words, he is still blessed. But Ephraim, on the other hand, and his descendants, they are going to become a group of nations. And those who are going to follow this series through the rest of this year are going to see how that plays out. Well, the second people that Jacob then blesses, having blessed his two grandsons, are his 12 sons. Although as you read the text, and we're about to do this in a moment, you are left scratching your head as to the biblical writer's definition of blessing. You'll see what I mean in a moment. Now look at verse 1 of Genesis 49. It says, Then Jacob called his sons, and he said, Gather round so that I can tell you what will happen in the days to come. Wouldn't you just love that? Wouldn't you just love that for someone to say to you, Listen, here's what's going to happen to you in the days to come, or would you want to know? Anyway, mixed with obvious sadness, because these are their dad's last words. But mixed with that obvious sadness, there must also have been a real sense of anticipation and expectation to wait for your name to be called and for your future to be described. But before we read from verse 3, glance down at verse 28. It's on the screen. It says this. Now this is after he's done his blessing with his 12 boys. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, given each the blessing that was appropriate to them. Now, hold that. Hold that. And now let's stand together for the public reading of God's Word. Genesis 49, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters. You will no longer excel. Hmm. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and you defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstring oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Hmm. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine. His teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the seashore and will become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a scrawny donkey, 
lying down among the sheepfolds. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasing is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and he will submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its riders tumble backwards. I look for your deliverance, Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed subtle because the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the of the age-old hills, let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours his prey, and in the evening he divides the plunder. Grab a seat. Now, let me make a couple of comments. The first is, some of that didn't sound like a blessing to me. In fact, for several of the boys, like Reuben and Simeon, for example, although they're not the only two, there's precious little by way of blessing. In fact, Jacob predicts that there may be trouble ahead. I so wanted to sing that line, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Jacob predicts there's going to be trouble ahead, but the future is not going to be that great, it would seem, for several of them. Like, how is you will no longer excel, Reuben. You are a scrawny donkey, Issachar. How are those blessings? And yet look at that verse that's on the screen. This is what the father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing that was appropriate to them. And maybe... Maybe this is a great example of when someone has the guts to speak uncomfortable truth into your life. The kind of truth that only those who are closest to you can actually get away with. That when someone close to you observes your life and watches your behavior and looks at the choices you're making and the attitudes that you're adopting, they actually offer a word of warning, a reprimand, a rebuke that is actually intended as a wake-up call. And to have someone in your life, and I can testify to this, to have someone in your life like that is a blessing. In fact, it could just save you from yourself and from a really messy future. And so maybe Jacob was blessing some of his boys by just getting them to face up to some home truths about what lay ahead for them. Which does beg this question. Who is it 
that speaks? Or who is it that has the permission to speak difficult words into your life? About what might happen if you keep heading in that particular direction. I'm convinced we need people in our lives to speak truth into our lives as they observe the choices we're making. The second thing about those verses is there's a rather glaring difference regarding the amount of space and the amount of words that's given to each son. Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and perhaps surprisingly Benjamin barely get a verse each. Whereas Judah and Joseph get ten verses between them. That's five each. But then again, as we discovered during the Living the Dream series, Joseph and Judah featured far more than the other 11 boys. But even though they both get five verses each, Joseph is singled out for special treatment. See, there's no surprise there. And two things stand out, and I hope you noticed them as I read them to you. Two things stand out as Jacob blesses Joseph. First, In terms of the narrative, verses 22 to 26, it's only Joseph who actually hears the word bless or blessing. Verses 25, 26, they appear six times. But maybe even more striking are the references to God in Joseph's blessing. God is the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the rock of Israel, your father's God, the Almighty. And I know you could easily spend a whole sermon reflecting on some or all of those titles and characteristics of God. But for Joseph to hear that God was all over his life, will be in the future, is currently, was in the past, must have been a real blessing. I'm not entirely sure how the other 11 processed the fact that none of their blessings included a reference to God. But Joseph's future did. And so a dying Jacob blesses his boys. His grandchildren, his his sons, and then he has one more thing to do before he dies. And that is, he has to arrange his final resting place. And this is really important for the patriarch. And Jacob is in Egypt at this point in the story. And although he's in Egypt, he's going to die in Egypt. But he really doesn't want to be left there. He wants to be taken and buried, look at verse 29, with his people. Do you remember God's promise to him? It was about people and about land. And so Jacob, as he dies, says, listen, I want you to take me to be led to rest with my people in a cave in Canaan, in the promised land, along with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah. You see, in death, Jacob is actually just holding on to the promises of God. Holding on tight to the promises of God. I heard God speak into my life about people. My descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth, that I would be given land, and therefore, I don't want to be left here. And I want want to be taken back there. And having given these instructions, and I love the final verse of chapter 49. Look at what it says. Jacob pulls his feet up into the bed and he breathes his last. And his body is then embalmed, which is a really weird thing for a Hebrew to have done. 
takes 40 days. And then there's a period of mourning for 70 days. Another really strange thing because that was an Egyptian practice. And according to verse 3 of chapter 50, those who mourned for those 70 days were Egyptians. Which kind of implies that somehow, and maybe it was because of Joseph's position in the land, somehow Jacob is actually identified as an Egyptian at this point in his life. Which probably then explains why he wanted his body taken back to be led to rest with his people and in his land. Because although it was clear everybody else was slightly confused about this man's identity, Jacob wasn't. Jacob knew who he was, whose he was, and where he belonged. And let me just ask you those three questions this morning. Who are you? How would you answer that question? Who are you? Whose are you? And where do you belong? What is your identity? Joseph gets permission from Pharaoh to do as his dad had asked. And so Joseph and his 11 brothers and all these Egyptian dignitaries and officials go to the land of Canaan and they carry out Jacob's final wish. But when they all come back, panic sets in. The brothers are scared. Because now that dad is dead and buried, they wonder to themselves, is Joseph going to seek retribution now? Is Joseph going to seek revenge for what he did or what we did to him 40 years ago? And so this is what it says in verse 15. What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And so what the brothers decide to do is they decide to approach Joseph and seek forgiveness. But these are really sad moments. Really sad moments. For at least a couple of reasons. The first is, it's pretty obvious that although these boys have been living with their brother for 17 plus years, they still aren't sure they've been forgiven. They still aren't sure they've been forgiven. And secondly, they can't bring themselves to ask for forgiveness in person. And so they send a request via someone else. And what they also do is that they use their father's death as a kind of emotional lever. And so what they do is they send a message via someone else to actually tell them this is what dad said. Joseph, dad told us to tell you to forgive us. Question is, did Jacob really say that? We don't know. And in some ways, it's irrelevant. The point is this. They were afraid to stand before Jacob in person and just ask for personal forgiveness. And that breaks Joseph's heart. Kind of in the same way that whenever we don't ask God personally for forgiveness, it breaks his heart. But it breaks Joseph's heart and he cries. Something that Joseph is actually prone to do a lot. Cries. But in this final recorded incident, in the whole story, Joseph shines. 
His reaction and his words are remarkable. And he makes one of the most mature, moving, inspiring, life-altering, godly, God-filled speeches in the whole drama. He says this, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? In other words, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to seek vengeance. Judgment and vengeance, you see, are God's prerogative. Always have been, always should be, and always will be. And then Joseph comes out with this phrase that we've all heard before. It's a statement of faith that deserves total attention. It's an affirmation of the providence of God, past and present. In fact, it's a verse that kind of sums up the entire Joseph narrative. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. You see, 40 years ago, the brothers had a plan. It was a sick, twisted, evil plan to kill their brother that was tweaked at the last moment so that instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. But what they didn't realize was that in the midst of their scheming, there was another plan at work. That hidden beyond and behind their malicious purposes was God's big-hearted purposes. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good. Let me say something. Do I fully understand this? Even do I fully understand some of what I'm about to say? I'm not sure that I do. But I believe it. Because that is a mind-blowing and potentially life-changing perspective. That, and here it is, that God can take the messed up intentions of others, the bang-out-of-order actions of those around us, sometimes even those who are closest to us. God can take those things. God can take the gross injustices of life. And he can use them to bring about the good that he designs. And if you're here this morning and you love God and you belong to God and yet you have been or you are being rejected by people you love or you've been misunderstood, mistreated, neglected, forgotten, if things haven't worked out for you, aren't working out for you in your life, please don't lose heart. If you have waited on God for what has seemed like years And apparently he has not acted. If you have prayed to God for months and apparently he has not answered, please don't ditch your faith. See, God is still at work in your life. But the problem is, and we need to be honest about this, the problem is that the working of God in our lives is often obscure. And it's really difficult to see. And often we only see God at work in our lives in retrospect. And that can be so blinking frustrating. That it's only when you look back over your life that you can trace the hand of God working out his purposes for you. I mean, there must have been times when Joseph wondered, where is God? As he lies at the bottom of a pit, 
as he walks in chains behind a bunch of slave traders, as he stands falsely condemned before Potiphar, being falsely accused of something he never did, or as he lies for two years in an Egyptian dungeon, deafened by the silence of God. Where is God? And yet here, as he reflects back after 40 years, he realizes that God has always been at work. That far from being unconcerned and indifferent and inactive, God was quietly and secretly and imperceptibly implementing his designs. And so so although at times you don't feel it, you don't see it, God is now here. He is never nowhere to be seen. And Joseph's life, and I need to finish, Joseph's life is a practical outworking of that Pauline classic from Romans 8 that again is so familiar to us. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. You see, this is a great basis for a philosophy of life. But a couple of comments that I need to make in this, and I'm sure most of you have heard these before, but I just want to restate them. The first is that Romans 8.28 does not say that God causes everything to happen. He doesn't. God is not responsible for the sick, twisted, evil intentions and plans of men and women. We must not take what the law labels crime and somehow call it the will of God. It's a difficult one. Secondly, the verse does not say that everything that happens is good. Everything that happens is not good. Some of the things that have happened to some people in this church or in our world are not good. They are bad. They are wrong. They are evil. Back, in, in, sorry, back to Joseph in Genesis 50, what he says in one translation to his brothers is, you meant evil against me. In other words, he didn't minimize this. He didn't gloss over the fact that what happened to him, what they had done to him, they had done to them, and what they had done to him was wrong. And what has happened to some of you is wrong. Not good by anybody's definition. And the third thing to stress about this verse is that we need to be careful in our definition of good. Most of the time when we think of all things working together for good, we define good in terms of health or wealth or success or comfort or prosperity or hassle-free living. And yet the good mentioned here is actually defined in the very next verse. You should always read Romans 8.28 alongside Romans 8.29. Because there good is defined as a growing conformity to Christ-likeness. Life is good when you and I are becoming more like Jesus. And to accomplish that in our lives, and this is hard, I know, to accomplish that in our lives, God can use all things, the mess and the order, the tears and the joys, the defeats, the victories, the failures, the successes, all because what he is in the process of doing is making us more like Jesus. That's good. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And, you know, as we come to communion in a few moments, we confront bread and wine that reminds us of a cross. And nowhere in history is there a more powerful example of God using wickedness and evil 
to bring about good. Man intended to harm Jesus. The injustice of Jesus' death is striking. And yet it's through the cross, and only through the cross, that we are reconnected to God, forgiven, liberated, granted life to the full. God's purpose, as Joseph said, in all of this, is to save lives. Do I totally understand all of that? No. Back to the story, just as I finish. Verse 21 then, he just says this. So then, don't be afraid. He repeats it again. I will provide for you. And I'll provide for your children. And the text says he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. And in these final moments, recorded moments of Joseph's life, his compassion, his tenderness, his kindness is moving. And surely now, surely now, the brothers know they've been forgiven. And one of the clear and the final lessons you learn from this whole story is that the road to reconciliation between human beings is long and winding. It requires dialogue. It requires active engagement over a long period of time often and a willingness to show compassion and tenderness and kindness. And some of you here are on that road with someone. Quite far down that road. But it's tough going. And some of you are here and you feel the need to start that journey towards reconciliation. Or the need to restart this, that journey. And then there are others for whom the hurt of what someone has done to you is too great for you to even contemplate starting that journey. 17 plus years down the road and finally it seems reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers is achieved so there is hope. But please hear me in this statement and this statement deserves a whole series. Forgiveness is always required by God but it does not always lead to reconciliation. Forgiveness is always required by God but it does not always lead to reconciliation between two people. Joseph lived for a few more years. Then he dies at 110. And he gets embalmed. And his body's placed in a coffin in Egypt. And before he dies, he gets the Israelites to swear to him that you'll take my bones up from this place. And in Exodus chapter 13, you find Moses doing exactly that. And the story continues next week.